Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Dr. Rafa Ayuba, a consultant psychiatrist based in London, born in the Basque country, Spain. And after qualifying in medicine, he became a psychiatrist in England where he worked in many different settings. His work on depression moved him to write a book on how we're not designed to be happy called You Are Not Meant to Be Happy, So Stop Trying. It's one of those book titles which makes you immediately pick it up and it's so beautifully written with so much research, so much insight from his clinics and his clients and it's just such an interesting read and every single chapter had me thinking about what even happiness is, why we are trying to chase it 24-7, the fact that it's quite strange that we kind of expect ourselves to wander around with like massive grins on our faces all the time when actually our brains are not designed to do that, they're designed to keep us alive and he really digs into it in this super interesting book looking at the myths of happiness, how our brains are not designed to keep us happy 24-7, the smoke and mirrors of self help positive thinking industries and how mixed and contradictory our emotions can be. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I absolutely loved talking to him and unpicking some of my favourite bits in the book. And if you feel intrigued, I definitely recommend picking up a copy of the book. Here is the conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for being here. I've got your book in my hand and I've got to say the title of the book, You Are Not Meant to Be Happy, So Stop Trying, with a big picture of the brain. I mean, (laughs) it's quite arresting and quite shocking. It made me want to read it. Was that important for you to kind of start there with the title? First of all, thank you for having me in your podcast. Yes, it was was deliberate and um, it was meant to be a provocative uh, title. Uh, because what you find in the bookshelves in these days is, well, the opposite message, really, that you have got to be happy and that if you're not happy, it's because you're doing something wrong. Uh, and my message instead is that we are not really designed to be happy. Happiness is not part of the human experience. Um, uh, and I wanted to transmit that with a provocative kind of title. So yes, it is. It is deliberate, yes. <laughs> Definitely. And I love how you flip a lot of things on on its head, but also through obviously your clients' stories about your real experience with people, but also all of the research and the data. And it's fascinating. You start the book by telling us that we have 10 trillion connections in the brain and that actually all of those different connections, they don't know how to make us happy. Would you be able to just talk us through a little bit about the biology and just starting there? Um, Well, actually, the brain does an awful lot of different things, and it is designed uh, to carry out these multiple, extremely complex functions. And yet, it doesn't seem to know how to make us happy, simply because it's not in its uh, brief. I mean, it wasn't, it it didn't evolve with that uh, uh, function, with that purpose, really, because it has nothing to do with not just us, but any other creature in the planet, we are here simply in order to to survive and reproduce, really. Uh, so we are here in order to serve our species, really. Uh, nature doesn't care about uh, the individual. Uh, so we are not here to be happy. That has nothing to do with our natural brief. And instead, we have these uh, all these neurotransmitters and all these uh, areas and regions in the brain that carry out these amazingly complex functions, some of which are to do with making us uh, feel, uh, you know, signals of alarm and anxiety that are 
absolutely essential for our survival. We need to be aware of the dangers in our environment. And we need to be anxious, actually. Anxiety is perfectly natural. We need to feel fear. And we also have uh, mechanisms uh, in the brain that are to do with feeling, uh, feeling pleasure and feeling rewards, which are also important for our survival. Uh, and, and they interplay with each other. And that's why we have these mixed emotions that we struggle with every single day of our lives. Um, and, but that's our, that's, that's our nature, really. Uh, and they have nothing to do with this state of constant bliss that the, the, the positive thinking industry tell us that we should be able to achieve. Mm. I mean, I found it really comforting. I know that you say in the book you're, you know, worried in some places that people might think it's negative, but yeah. I think I think it's so affirming actually to be in tune with reality and what's actually going on. And it's interesting about the positive thinking industry and the happiness industry made me really wonder what happiness even is because when I'm feeling anxious and I'm sort of nice to myself and and I admit that being anxious is a reality and I'm not trying to fight it, I feel happier, but I don't know if it's happiness. I think it's more peace. So I wonder why do we chase happiness so much? Where does happiness even come from? Exactly, exactly. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, happiness is nothing more than an abstract concept. It's something that we imagine. And now we are chasing this ghost that we imagined. In fact, our ancestors, I think, they were more aware than we are that there isn't such a thing as, as happiness. And um, you know, in, in 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 the old times, they you know people spoke of the you know the, our existence being uh, a veil of tears. You know, something that you know we are not meant to be happy in this existence, and perhaps we might be able to access a paradise in the in the afterlife if, if one believed in that kind of thing of course so i think that we're more in tune with the reality of existence than we are uh instead we have we have built this uh idea pushed to a certain extent by the optimism industry uh, that we should be able to achieve a state of happiness when in fact that's simply not so mm. Because it's interesting how like melancholy and those emotions were thought of as a positive emotion in, in like the yeah. 16th century. I think it was people would walk around thinking they were really in tune with their poetry and their art and they would like feeling sad. But what about those moments of joy that do feel really good? You know, those like the dog <laughs> running around or the baby laughing or smiling would you say that's happiness or what is that then? Well, it is joy. I think the word is absolutely correct. It is, it, uh, there are moments of fleeting joy that are not meant to be uh, constant. They are not even meant to be that frequent necessarily. Um, and they are part of human experience. And uh, it is, of course, perfectly legitimate to, to pursue that or to enhance or to promote feelings of, of joy as much as we can, even though many thinkers have realized that um, actually um, there's something called the, the paradox of hedonism in that, you know, it, it, it says that the more one seeks pleasure, the more it, it deludes us. Uh, and only by, by not seeking it, uh, one may uh, simply allow pleasure or joy to come to us occasionally. And several different authors I have postulated that, but it is in any case perfectly legitimate to promote feelings of joy and happiness as much as we can. But we will only reach so far and only for so long. Um, and there isn't, we will never achieve a state of permanent uh, joy or if not even anything similar to that. It's simply not in our nature. 
it's interesting with your clients and the stories that you share, people that are really suffering in those sessions and, and in their lives, they're expecting to be happy all the time. And I love how you peel back those layers with them. Yes. I just retired as a psychiatrist, as a consultant psychiatrist, where people who were actually suffering an awful lot um, and quite intensely, actually. And it is curious that that's another area that tends to be denied in the, in the positive thinking culture. They deny the suffering of mental illness specifically, which can be absolutely horrendous, absolutely horrendous. And there's this fantasy, again, that one can control that with positive thinking and so on, which is simply not true. It's simply not true. And actually, I feel very strongly about that. Um, but in any case, you're, you're, true, you're, you're right saying that, uh, you know, some of the interactions that I describe in the book have to do with uh, some people actually confusing, like we do in medicine, in psychiatry and in psychology, confusing um, suffering uh, or rather unhappiness with mental illness. Uh, when in fact, even though mental illness always carries suffering, they're not the same thing. Um, and sometimes psychiatry and psychology pathologize uh, unhappiness as being something that should be treated with medicines and with psychotherapy and so on. When in fact, unhappiness in itself is not a disorder. Um, there are many things to do with unhappiness that have a psychiatric diagnosis attached to them, but in itself, uh, unhappiness is not a, a, a disorder. It is part of our existence, like being, you know, like living and, and loving and dying. I keep hearing this message that happiness is achievable. If I'm not happy, I must be doing something wrong. And there's something wrong with my personality, or I'm, I'm incompetent at achieving happiness, which is absurd, of course. And, and it's something that I particularly dislike, dislike those who actually promote that view. Mm -mm. It was interesting as well what you said around when a patient or a depressed patient might improve, that sometimes it's hard to know what that was because of and how yes. this is such a massive topic, obviously, but how that was quite interesting to know that you don't know what did the trick sometimes. I agree really with some trepidation in the sense that the psychiatrist, you know, it's something a bit slightly, well, not dodgy, but uh, it's not something that the psychiatrist would normally say. We quite naturally believe that if a patient of ours gets better, it's because we have done something right. Um, when in fact, uh, there is something called a regression to the norm in it's a statistical concept, which means that over time, there is a tendency in nature for things to return to the norm, to how they were before. So even if one doesn't do anything particularly you know, amazing with somebody's treatment, the chances are that in time, many patients will return to, to normal, really. And it has nothing to do with what the psychiatrist did. <laughs> I just love how bold the book is. Like you're really just putting it out there. And actually sometimes it's really good to read a book that is just saying it how it is and, and putting your view across, which is some people might find really interesting because it's like the opposite of what they've been told their whole life. But I, I remember learning a while ago about the negativity bias and that really made sense actually. Of course, for survival, we're scanning the area and trying to come up with, you know, dangers and things like that. I mean, that's changed everything for me. I mean, could you talk a little bit about what that is if people don't know? 
Yes, yes. But it means, as you said, the fact that we need to scan for dangers and therefore we need to notice bad stuff. We need to, uh, from a natural point of view, when I say we need is we need in order to, you know, to promote survival uh, from a strictly natural uh, perspective. We need to be aware of anything that is wrong in our environment. And therefore, you know, when we are sometimes confronted with a number of data that are all you know, absolutely fine, you know, everything is fine, we are all right, our health appears to be well, our house, our environment, and yet we find something that is not quite right. Um, and I use in the book the example of me finding a little crack on the wall in the house and and straight away wondering whether there's subsidence in the in the in the in the house, even though obviously there isn't subsidence, but also there is another you know, huge amount of things in my life that are life that are absolutely fine, and that you know I completely forget and focus uh, completely on the crack in the in the in the wall, and, and you know its possible meaning. So that's the negative bias, and that and that has a, a lot of impact in, on our well-being. Uh, it gets in the way of us feeling, you know, relaxed and happy about our existence. Um, but that's once again that's the way we are designed. I've been reading quite a lot recently around as well, kind of CBT therapies and people, you know, spiritual leaders who are sort of suggesting that people question their thoughts and yes. that we can alleviate suffering from reframing things and kind of questioning if our thoughts are right and all of that stuff. I mean, what do you what do you think about that? The fact that we we could kind of go through our lives flipping things on their head and actually finding the good in things like that could be a, st a mental state that we can change well absolutely i mean that that is uh, i certainly you know cbt i'm married to a cbt therapist so you know i i, I, sh I shouldn't say anything against it and in fact it does work uh, i mean I'm not, I'm not sure it is the panacea that sometimes it is uh you know that people might say it is uh, uh, but um it certainly does work and certainly there is merit in reframing things in a more positive light and, uh, and so on absolutely um but there is no cbt approach that would actually make us happy uh, once again um, um but it, it, it will help us through through difficult times in life absolutely yes yes and I suppose, I mean, I acknowledge that there is a bit of a semantic issue in that, uh, you know, the question might be, you know, how do you define happiness? What, the, what is it? Um, but I, in any case, I don't think that's necessarily so important. I mean, I talk about proxies of happiness, things that are a bit like happiness, like joy or fun or, uh, you know, enjoyment, pleasure, all these positive things that are to do with happiness, but they're not happiness themselves. Um, and in fact, there is abundant uh, evidence. I, I mean, I start the book with the example of this historical figure in Middle Ages, Spain, who was a caliph in the in the southern part of the peninsula, who achieved absolutely everything in life, uh, had absolutely everything: prestige, and money, and, you know, access to all the pleasures in life, and so on. And he counted all the happy days he had experienced in his life and found that he was only 14. For the rest of his life, he hadn't been happy. So that's, a, you know, that's an illustration of how all these proxies of happiness to do with enjoyment and so on are not happiness themselves. And even those are very difficult to come by as well. It, as we all know, it's difficult to feel, to access pleasure as much as we would like to. So happiness is a different thing, it's something else. Um, 
And it is it becomes very ethereal, it becomes very abstract. It is a ghost, as I say, that we are chasing. And it only exists as an abstract concept. It's not, it doesn't have any other tangible uh, um, you know, quality to it, really, I, I would argue. Mm. Yes. Wow, okay, yeah. Because I've, I've got an app that I use, which is like a meditation app, and every time I log on, it asks me to say how I feel. And one of the buttons is happy. And I don't think I press that button very often <laughs> because I'm I, I'm okay, but I'm not like woo happy. <laughs> exactly. Neither neither would I. Neither would I. And yet and yet you know, uh, and yet we are supposed to um, you know to say that we are, we are doing okay and we are feeling happy and so on. It is almost bad manners to say otherwise. It is mm. considered to be a bit unpleasant, if anything. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I know. And that, and that's why it's inter- interesting to acknowledge that it's an industry and that we are being sold to and that opens up a whole different can of worms. But you mentioned there about money and happiness, and I love the chapter on that. And there's something in there, I think that I'm pa- I might be paraphrasing this wrong, but um, you say along the lines of money can buy us sort of well-being and comfort, but it can't necessarily buy us this elusive happiness. That was interesting. Exactly. I mean, and we know that that's in, in our culture. I mean, it is it's something that everybody knows. And I don't dispute that, that, you know, that the fact that, you know, many things in life that are so very good are for free and so on. And yet it is, uh, it is, there is a correlation and many studies have shown that there is a correlation between income or, or you know, material well-being and, and happiness or well-being in general. But it's not a linear correlation. So it's, it reaches a plateau. Uh, after which it doesn't progress any further. And there is something called the Easterling paradox after uh, a researcher in America who found that um, if, if there was a correlation between happiness and, and material well-being, then the huge improvement that we have experienced in the Western world in, 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 uh, you know, in material well-being since the, the end of the Second World War should have resulted in uh, higher levels of happiness. And that hasn't been the case. Uh, and that is the paradox. Um, so, so it is. There is. What is clear is that absence of money actually makes you very unhappy, and that's quite clear. And it does show very clearly, even at the national level. Uh, the W, the the United Nations publishes a report every so often of a, uh, they they publish the rank of levels of happiness in different countries in the world. And they find invariably that the richer countries uh, are happier than the poorer ones. Um, so, you know, even at the national level, there is a clear association between happiness and, and money. But, but this uh, is, is, is not linear. God, that's it's fascinating. Um, I just wanted to read a, a line from the book, I hope you don't mind, about what you said about how emotions are quite tangled up and we can have this contradiction in emotion because it's just so interesting. Um, Maybe we can talk a little bit about why that is. So our emotions are tangled and messy because they need to be that way. We react to a permanently changing environment, which demands feelings of alarm, frustration, disappointment, and sadness, as well as joy, amusement, and hope. The triggers for these sentiments frequently occur together, and this is why the resulting emotions can also occur together. It's simply impossible to distangle the fear from the fun of a roller coaster or the sadness of the sweet nostalgia in a sentimental song, or the apprehension from the anticipation in an adventure. Love is notoriously contradictory. I just love that. I love that you can't distangle the fear and the fun of a roller coaster. It's so true. Yes. 
It is. Yeah, I think it is true. I think it is true. And and I, I suppose we tend to think of emotions in in as single entities. Uh, so we tend to think of joy, uh, fear, uh, uh, anxiety, or uh, sadness as separate entities. When in fact they tend to come mixed. Uh, actually, we tend to experience them as as, as mixed uh, entities rather than as single ones. And that's why I was trying to convey in that passage in the book that we, even when we are feeling well or even when we're having fun, you know, in the roller coaster, we're still afraid, which is a negative emotion. Uh, or when we are uh, the opposite, I suppose, there are sometimes feelings of, of melancholia that may include uh, some nostalgia that with just you know sweet uh, sweet bitter sweet um, again another another combination of emotions and that's much more common than the pure yes. single and i guess it's funny and sort of quite ironic that this isn't really a self-help book but i feel like it is helpful it is a helpful book. You talk about self-help books. I found that really fascinating where you were saying that actually there's sort of an irony there that the more you try and improve, the more you try and read all these self-help books, the less happy you may be. Exactly, exactly. I mean, they tend to promote these self-improvement uh, projects uh, that can be can end up being a bit joyless and a bit narcissistic. And and curiously, some books to do with uh, self-help will tell us how to achieve happiness directly by detaching ourselves from desire and detaching ourselves from wanting things and fearing things. Whereas this other genre of uh, self-help books will tell us that, you know, you can make it big in life and you know be successful with women and whatnot by doing, you know, by following these instructions, when in fact it's the opposite of what one should do in order to try to achieve any measure of happiness. Mm -hmm. So it is contradictory, yeah. So I could talk to you for hours about it. Um, I know I'm doing this a bit back to front, but I thought I would ask you a little bit about your career because I know you mentioned that you have retired from being a psychiatrist. Yes. How did you even kind of get into this in the first place when you've had such a long amazing career. How did I become a psychiatrist? I, I, I studied medicine and while I studied medicine, I realized that what really appealed to me was the more humanistic side of medicine rather than the, 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 the more necessarily the more biological kind of medical, uh, purely medical aspect of things. Um, and that's how I became a psychiatrist, I suppose. Uh, once I became a psychiatrist, I actually became very interested in the biological side of psychiatry as well. But I remained fascinated by the, the, the human side of, of things, which in psychiatry is so very, very important, of course. Um, and it is however hard we try, we cannot, there's no way to reduce psychiatry to a pure mechanical kind of uh, kind of discipline. Uh, one has to think in philosophical and humanistic terms as well. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Um, really happy to have discovered your work. And um, it's really important and really great to kind of tackle a subject that I feel a lot of people are quite lost in all of these books telling us we should be this and should be that. And this just zooms out and gives a bit of a wider kind of picture of what we're even looking at. So thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>